So uh, I am. Bit, we we talking about uh, the whole story of Yaakov and Esav. Um, you know just how what really goes on the uh, what's called the uh, the real hidden story of what it's really all about. Um, and uh, what we're up to is that all of a sudden Yaakov, after he leaves the house of Lovin, right. So uh, if you recall the theme, the ultimate idea, the theme, is that Yaakov and Esav re represents two different uh, struggles in terms of what has to be done for the uh, rectification of the creation itself. Uh, like I said, you know, Yaakov, the job of Yaakov is to bring down enormous amount of holiness or divine energy, and that will retransform the entire world back into a spiritual domain. And that's really the essential idea of the future world of the Abba. That's really the job of the Jew. The job of the Jew is when you do the mitzvahs, commandments, what you essentially do is you introduce an enormous amount of divine energy. It's called or Kabbalah, right? And what you do is you retransform the physical universe into a spiritual one. And that's really the whole objective of what a Jew has to do. But in any case, so, so, that, so therefore... Sorry, yeah, what? Correct, when Asa, when Yaakov brought the Bechayr from Asa, yeah, basically at that point Asa, Asa could have done the ticket also. Yes, he blew it at that point. Yes, correct. And Yaakov had to save the world by buying yes. the Bechayr and doing the ticket through Yikwaiso. That's right. Yeah, and that was the job of Yaakov is to bring down this incredible energy. Uh, it's called the sparks of holiness. And the job of Asa, which is his twin brother, was to be able to take back an enormous amount of the energy which is trapped in evil, the side of evil, which is a Sutton. And uh, the whole concept of the, the Sutton, that, that angel represents the whole side of evil, accumulates the enormous amount of ore or divine energy that the Jews give him when they sin. So the job is you got to take it back from him. And the way to do that is to go, when you go into an environment that is filled with temptations, okay, and you remain righteous, what happens is you draw out the energy from the Sutton and you put it back in the correct side, and then when you bring down the rest of it, the whole universe changes. That's really the whole object of what has to do, what the Jews have to do, and that's really called tikkun. That's called rectification, or to correct the, the existential problem that the universe has. And the problem we know is that God is not revealed in this universe. Uh, and this is the problem. Uh, and the major impediment is the physical universe. In any case, so we know that Yaakov, or rather, well, since Asa failed that job, so Yaakov took it over. We know that. I mean, that's what he's seeing, right? Uh, so, so Yaakov had to take over his job and the job of Esau. So since he took over the job of Esau, he now had to go into an area filled with enormous amount of, uh, of temptations. So therefore, he now went to the house of Lovin. And in that place, 20 years, he struggled to remain righteous so he, in essence, did the job of Esau. Most of it, or I should say, at least half of it, and so on. So what happens now? Now he goes and encounters an angel, the famous fight between Jacob, Yaakov, and the, and the Malach. We know who that Malach is, we know who that angel is. That angel is the angel of Esau. That angel is the Satan himself, who is the Malach of, of Esau. And uh, well, we know that, and he fights that Malach. It's a very important battle, and um, he fights that Malach, and he wins. 
And really, though, you have to really ask yourself, well, what was the fight about? You can't fight an angel. It's too, first, besides the fact that there's two different beings, I mean, how do you find a malach? A malach isn't physical. He doesn't become depleted. You can't injure it. So what is going on, you know? But the essential idea of this fight, and, uh, you know, and, and there, there are people that allude to this. The Sapuna alludes to this. Yaakov didn't fight with a malach literally, an angel. You can't fight with a malach. I mean, fight with a spiritual being. But what he did is he, is he fought that which the malach, the angel, who was the sultan himself, tempted him. And the major temptation, so what Yaakov did is all of a sudden he had this incredible feeling of, I'm somebody. Kaiva, arrogance. Because look at what he'd done. He'd gone to the house of Lovin, right? And he fulfilled, he, he did an incredible job. Not only that, he now has 12 tribes. His kids are 12 tribes, right? One of them, Yehuda, is the root soul of the Mashiach ben Yehuda, David, the, the David, the Vedic Messiah. And the other one is Yosef, which is the uh, root soul of the uh, Joseph Messiah, <coughs> Sheikh ben Yosef. I mean, what he did was enormous. And he's now coming with this whole entourage, which is the Jewish people. So all of a sudden, there enters him. I mean, it's very extensive. I'm just giving you the highlights, sort of, you know. All of a sudden, he's beset by this incredible desire or temptation that, wow, I'm somebody. I feel like what I did was incredible. Gaiva. You see that the Medrash refers to that, which is interesting. So he had to fight his inclination of incredible arrogance, of incredible feeling that he was something incredible. And he fought that temptation the whole night. It was only in the morning that all of a sudden it was revealed to him that that struggle that he had was satanic, was from the Sultan himself. And therefore, Vayeovek Ish Imoy, and the man fought with him all night, really was, it's a description of the Sutton. The reason why it's called a man is because the Sutton is the only one who can enter your mind and tempt you. So in that sense, he appears to you as a man or as something involved in your physical body. So therefore, he fought and he, and he won. And in the, in, toward the morning, all of a sudden, the Sutton appeared to him, and they were able to see him, Allahum angels, he appeared to him and he realized that the entire temptation that he had the whole night was truly satanic in nature. That the drive to think of himself as somebody, arrogance, was incredible drive. And he, always, and he overcame it. And in that way he weakened the Sultan tremendously. Because he took back an incredible amount of the energy that the Sultan had as a result of the sins of the Jews. And that's why the Sultan, you know, Leave me go, leave me go. And he said, no, I want you to bless me. So what did the Sutton do? The Sutton didn't bless him. You don't find he gave him a bracha. He said that from now on, your name will be Yisrael, which means that you have contended with, uh, with uh, people who are evil, love and Esau and me, and you won. Because that's what the word Yisrael means. So from then on, his name was changed to Yisrael because he had been unbelievable victorious. And he remained humble. And he was able to overcome that incredible arrogant drive. When did, um, that, what? when did that fight ha happen right after he came back from the Pachan Ketanim, from taking, crossing back the river? Yeah. Is there a reason why it happened at that moment? Because, that, well, it's not so much Pachan Ketanim. It's the fact that he had now had an incredible accomplishment coming away from Lovin now, right? And that, would, could, that could be the basis of an enormous struggle for arrogance. When you, when you do something which is an incredible achievement, 
it's very easy to feel arrogant. It's very, very easy to feel, well, I'm, I must be somebody. You know, feeling what's called gaiva, you know, haughtiness, uh, and so on, you know. And that's the exact moment that the, that the Sultan att tempted him, because at that point in time, he was very vulnerable to that feeling. It's a lot more to say about this. I just want to, because I'm, I'm going to go further with this, but I'm, what I'm giving you now is the essential idea of what the conflict was. It was the Yitzhahara. It was an incredible evil inclination that he, where he was trying to get Yaakov to feel haughty, arrogant. I must be somebody. And Yaakov had to maintain his anivas, his incredible humility, which he did. And he won. And therefore the Sultan was trapped because, you know, because he had succeeded in taking out of the Sultan an incredible amount of energy or divine ore because was of his conflict. Was Gil Hanosham in the... Wait, uh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 no, there, there's a lot, there, yeah. I, I can't go into the whole story, it's like a whole thing in itself, yeah. Mm -hmm. But then there was, because Yaakov did fail in one area, so the Sultan had access, you know, it was, even though he, he in the majority, he was able to fight the feeling of arrogance, but there was a certain slight feeling that he had that he was special, and therefore he became vulnerable. In which area? What? What was the area? It's a whole medrash that talks about. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so, anyway, because of that vulnerability, he slipped slightly, very slightly. He was vulnerable, and the sudden hit him at the base. Because he fell slightly in, in, in arrogance, and the arrogance is the worst thing because the essential, essential idea of God is Enetobadoi. Besides God, there is nothing else. So arrogance is the complete opposite idea of that. that you think you're somebody. Anyway, I don't get into that. That's a whole thing and so on and so forth. But there was a slight um, f uh, um, falling, you know, he did slightly fall. But anyway. But the main idea was he, he was successful, and therefore he was able to vanquish the Sultan. He weakened the Sultan, which is astounding, uh, because the one who contended with him was the Malach himself, was the Sultan himself, the Satan himself. Anyway, fine, so that's this encounter. That's this encounter. But then he's now going to meet Esau. It's a famous story, he's going to meet Esau, right? And Esau is coming to attack him at Tunla He's coming to attack him with 400 people, men. It's quite an army. And Yaakov had what? Just a couple of people and so on, you know? More of that, uh, you know, 12 kids, or basically kids, whatever, you know? And he's coming to fight him. And, um, and all of a sudden he meets Esau, and Esau says to him, incredible. He kisses him, and the Rabshimayichoi in the Gemara says that was a true kiss. You know, here's a guy coming to kill you, and all of a sudden he kisses him, right? And he says to him, you know, I was coming to kill you. Why? Because you stole my birthright. I mean, or you stole the blessings that Yitzchak gave you. You stole it. You know? And all of a sudden Esau says, you can keep it. That's incredible. What a change of heart. And so on. So, what he was afraid of is that he had a daughter, Dina. You know, and he didn't want Esau to see Dina, because then maybe Esau would want to marry Dina. Okay, and I'm, again, I'm keeping the story basically, you know, just uh, brief. So what did Yaakov do? So Yaakov took Dina, and he put her into a chest. He hid her. 
So Esav wouldn't see her, and therefore he wouldn't know that he had a daughter like Dina, and therefore he wouldn't marry her, you know. So he did that. He put her on a chest. Uh, you know, he, con he concealed her, right? It's a famous uh, uh, thing that he did. And, uh, and Esav, of course, didn't see her. And that was it. And, you know, Yaakov said, okay. Esav said, I want you to come and visit me. He said, don't worry. I'll try to catch up with all my livestock. And he had a lot of, had a lot of cattle, and, you know, he was uh, so young. I'll catch up and we'll get together. You know, we'll get together someday, right? Anyway, so he hid Dino. And all of a sudden, the, the, the Medrash says, there was a divine voice that came out and said, how could you hide Dina from Esau? Because you didn't give Dina to Esau as a wife, she will be taken forcibly by somebody else. Shem, which is the next story. So this is one of the most difficult questions to answer. What do you mean? You imagine you have a daughter, right? And, uh, you know, and uh, the guy's going to come to visit you as a mafia guy. Now he's the head of the mafia, right? So you don't want your daughter to marry the head of the mafia, right? I mean, you're, you're a religious Jew, right? Yeah, you know? So what do you do? You tell your daughter, hey, you know, go in the other room, you know, while this guy's here. And then when he leaves, you know? So would anybody say to this guy, how dare you hide your daughter from this mafia guy? Of course not. You know, guys, when they look for shidduch, a marriage partner, they try to look for the best one, you know, a girl, everything, all the, all the qualities and all that, you know. Nobody's going to marry his daughter off to the mafia or to some kingpin mafia guy or some incredible criminal that's wanted on the 10, 10 wanted, most wanted criminals on the FBI list. I mean, can I have an excuse to this guy? Yet God said to Yaakov, how could you do this? How could you deny your daughter and not let Esau see her because you don't want her to marry Esau? No, let her marry Esau. And because of that, Dina was taken by another guy, Shem, which is a story that comes after this, and which is just beyond belief. What claim, what argument does God have to do this? It's one of the most difficult questions in all of the Chumash. It really is. Because it's astounding. What was the mistake that Yaakov made? There is no mistake. So then why would God say that? That is the question. Yeah. What's the mistake that Dina made? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. <clears throat> that's a very good question. Why should she suffer? Even if Yaakov made a mistake, why should she suffer? That's true. Yeah, but there were mistakes that she made too. It wasn't just that. But it would never have happened, you know, uh, you know it, it, the, the mistake she made I mean, very quickly is Vatetze Dina. And Dina went out to see the daughters of the land. She went out to see the, you know, she checked out the place, you know. You know, it's like you move to Manhattan, and you check out Manhattan. You know, it's, uh, you know, you know, you know and, and for a girl, it's not appropriate. You know, they shouldn't go out in a place which is filled with idol worship. I mean, let's face it, those days, Canaan or Canaan, whatever you want to call it, it wasn't a place like you want to go and visit. It wasn't a touring site, you know. So what do you mean? What, what are you going out and checking out the idolatry and the licentiousness? You know, and the enormous amount of immorality and depravity, etc., etc. That's really what it was all about. So, what are you checking out? But whatever reason she had, I'm going to go into that. That was wrong. So she had a wrong, and Yaakov had a wrong, and somehow God said this was. You know, I always have to think more about this. You know, but I'm just saying there is room to realize that Dina was not innocent completely. There, there was something guilty that she did, which obviously God said it was enough. The combo, the combination. Without that, 
the, but the incredible thing is how could Yaakov be blamed for not giving his daughter to Esau? It's beyond belief. Now, some people want to say the Bale Musa, those people who want to, you know, give uh, Musa and you know, uh, ethical uh, uh, sermons and all that. So they say, well, yeah, of course Yaakov didn't have to give his dina to Esau, but he should have felt bad. He should have said to himself, I feel terrible that I can't even give it to my brother, Esau. In those days, a, a brother could marry a, a niece or whatever. I, I can't even give it to uh, my brother. So he should have felt that he's bad. Yeah, but okay, that, that's, that's a nice sermon. <clears throat> Doesn't answer the question. Really. But the truth is, there is an incredible answer. And I hate to say it, but God's right. Sounds funny, you know. That God's right, you know. But uh, the Russian is right. So you look and you say, what do you mean he's right? How can he be right? And I will tell you an answer. I've never seen this anywhere else. But I hold this is the answer. And it fits perfectly into the story. You ready? Okay. Let's go back a minute. And that's why I stress the fight with the angel. Who was that angel? That angel was the Satan. Was Satan himself. Correct? He was the angel, the guardian angel of Esau. Because when you sin so much, you know, you now get a new guardian angel. And that's called the Satan. Right? So, and Rashi says, Sarah Esau. That's who he was. Right? He fought him. And he won. Yaakov won. So what did he realize? What he should have realized is that if you beat the Satan and you de-energize him, you take back an incredible amount of power from the evil Satan because you've now remained righteous, correct? Then you've weakened the Satan. Not the proof of that is the Satan said, leave me go. And he had, he, the Satan had to bless Yaakov. You know what I'm saying? We called him Yisrael. I mean, that's how much he vanquished the Satan. But wait a minute. If the Satan is the guardian angel, so to speak, of Esau, wouldn't he also have weakened the connection that the Satan, the great tempter, had over Esau? Yes, exactly. So Yaakov should have said, wait a minute, I just weakened, I whipped the guardian angel, the angel of Esau. Therefore the hold, the incredible temptations and so on, or the inclination to do evil, between the Satan and Esau is shattered or enormously diminished. That's number one. Should have realized that. Number two, when he saw Esau, finally, you know, Esau's coming with four guys to kill him. And all of a sudden, what does Esau do? Gives him a big bear hug, so to speak, and kisses him. Yaakov should have said, excuse me, what's going on here? There's a complete change of mind. And then the whole reason why Esau was coming to kill him was because of the blessings that Yaakov took, that Yitzchak gave Yaakov, you know, the whole, the whole incident there. So that he was going to come to kill the guy, and all of a sudden he says to him, Yehilich let that which is yours be yours. I, I'm, I'm okay with this. And Rashi says, This meant keep the blessings. I'm no longer, no longer angry. But that's impossible. You're just coming with four new guys to kill me, and now you recant? You change your mind? What's going on here? So Yaakov should have realized, uh-oh, Esau is ready to do tshuva, to repent. All he needs is a little nudge. <coughs> Who's the nudge? Dina. <clears throat> Dina could have done it. Because he anyway fell. 
And it was the separation between the Sultan and, and, and Esau was tremendously broken. And the proof of that was Esau's behavior, which was completely contrary to what he was coming for. So Yaakov should have said, this is incredible. It's possible to get Esau to do tshuva. Wow. Esau to repent. What would that have meant? I will tell you what it would have meant. It would have changed the history of the Jewish people. Beyond, beyond belief. How? Let's take, check it out. All he had to do was give Dina. Dina was a Yatsonis, which means that she was a very outgoing girl. She was perfect for the Tshuva movement, for the Kirov movement, right? And she could have taken a guy like Esau, and Esau was very powerful, tremendous uh, personality, and even though he was evil, that he decided he wanted to be evil. She could have taken uh, Esau and, and really got it to be a tzaddik. I, you know, what would that have meant? Let me show you what that would have meant. And then you realize why it was a terrible sin on Yaakov's part. I mean, we can't say that because we can't judge Yaakov. But, you know, from God, that's why this is the punishment. What would that have accomplished? Here's what it would have accomplished. One, Yitzchak, the father of Esau, felt terrible that his son was a Russia. Imagine, what does a guy feel when you know your son is an evil? He's a Zora, he's incredibly immoral, he's a Ratzeach, he's a murderer, and that's what Esau was doing. So how do you think Yitzchak, who was one of the others, the patriarchs, what do you think he felt about Esau? Terrible. So imagine if Yaakov had gotten Esau to do tshuva, that would have been one of the greatest honor your father and mother ever known. Keep it over him, wouldn't it? To take away the incredible sadness of a father looking at his son, that his son is now completely evil, and he would have reversed it? What, a, what an incredible keep it over aim to honor your father and mother, right? That's the first thing he could have done, had Asa repented. Second thing, Asa would have married Dina, and who would have been born? Osnas. Osnas would have been born, who was the product of Shechem, who had forcibly taken Dina. Okay, Osnas, and Osnas would have married Yosef, which is in the end, that's what Yosef married. He married Osnas. So that means Esav would have been the father-in-law of Yosef. That's interesting. That's number two. Number three. Number three. What? Number three. Wait, wait, wait. Number three, Esav's power would have been restored to the Jewish people. You imagine that? Because he then would have resumed his role as a patriarch, probably. So all his power, his incredible energy, and all the evil would have been, what do you call it, changed to Kedusha righteousness. That means we would have had the power of Esau, that personality, that leadership ability and so on, would have been restored to the Jewish people. That's number three. And number four, who is the product of Esau? Esau gave rise, was called Edom, Edomites. Edom is... Rome. There would be no Rome. Exactly, because the power of Rome over the Jews is from the whole concept of Esau. The power of Esau over the Jews, without getting into it, is the power of Rome. So had Esau done tshuva, they would, we would never have had the Roman persecution. Could you imagine? No Roman persecution? It's unbelievable. And all the products that come out of Rome. Not bad. That's what would have happened had Esau done tshuva. So that's why God said to him, how could you do this? You mean that what you've just done by not realizing that Esau could do tshuva, repent. You've just continued the whole destruction 
or the possible destruction of the Jewish people because of all these reasons and so on. And therefore God said, measure for measure. You don't want to give it to Dina where she could take him and make him a Balchuva, a repentant. I will give it to Shechem, the guy, the son of Shechem ben Chamor, who was the city of Shechem, that's where they were in the city of Shechem. I will give it to Shechem, let the evil people take her. And of course Dina had her own contribution. But the major idea was measure for measure. You don't want to rescue Esau because you want to hold Dina for yourself? No. Dina has to go to somebody else and she's going to go to Shem. Unbelievable. So you see, not only does the question not exist, it makes incredible sense. That's why. The thing is, you have to understand the hidden themes of the story of what's going on to understand the logic of the next event. And that was the problem. And how do we know this? Because the Torah, in its incredible way, alludes to everything I just said in one word. What the problem was with Yaakov and Esau, that he didn't recognize that Esau could have done tshuva repent. In one word. Not bad. How? Because it says, well, Yaakov talks to Esau, and Esau says, okay, I'm leaving. You know, someday we'll get together again. So look what it says. It says, Vayoshov, and he returned, Esau that is, Vayomahu, on that day, Esau, Esau, Esau returned on that day, Ladarkoi, to his way, Seira, to Seir. Now, he should have just said, and Esau returned on that day to Seir, because that's where he lived, in Mount Seir. What do you mean, Ladarkoi? To his evil ways. Unbelievable. How the Torah alludes to the whole problem here with one word. And Esav returned to his way, to his way of evil, Seir. Instead of going to Seir, Mount Seir, as a, a tzaddik, he went as a rasha. The dark way, his old way. It's, it's incredible how the Torah alludes to the whole story in one word. This was the problem. Now, from that, we now begin to see something. Now that we understand what happened in Shechem. What happened in Shechem? Because this took place in Shechem, right? Then the next story is where Shechem, who was one of the main guys in the city of Shechem, their name is Shechem, that was the name, right? All of a sudden he sees Dina, right? And he decides to take her, which he does forcibly, and that's it. And then he falls in love with Dina, the Torah says. Then his father now, after violating Dina, his father now comes back to Yaakov and says, you know, my son loves your daughter. He wants to marry her. Maybe we can do something. You know? So of course, uh, well, we do something. He just raped her. It's, it's beyond belief. But anyway, so what happens? So Shimon and Levi say, no problem. And of course, what they did is, before you do that, but anyway, they wiped out the city. But the main thing is this. So what's Shem's argument? And take a look at this. And Chamor, the father of Shem, says to them, Yaakov, Shem b'ni, my son, Shem, my son loves your daughter, right? Give him to a, a woman. And what's going to be? Your daughters will marry our sons, and our sons will marry your daughters. Hey, we're going to become one people, right? And not only that, and not only that, we'll be able to trade together. Commerce will do business together. Hey, this is what the uh, peace is all about. Right? Okay. 
what is this? Now, here's where we begin to see. Do you remember I said that the Jewish people have two gifts? One is tferis, beauty, which is wisdom, and oiz, might. They have two incredible gifts. Why? Because that's the essential idea of the Divine Presence. The Divine Presence has wisdom, obviously, because the Divine Presence, the Shekhinah, creates reality. And all that, right, that's the beauty of the Shekhinah. And it also has might. And remember I told the Oizes, might, might means potency, the ability to do, to implement. That's the gift. And with the Jewish people, I said, have it, because we say in the morning, the Brocha, Oiti Yisrael B'Sifara, who girds Israel, who crowns Israel with beauty, Oizi Yisrael B'Gvura, right? And who girds Israel with strength. That's our blessing. Okay? Fine. But remember I told you, is when the Jews sin, that goes to the Goyim. That goes to the, those, the, the Goyim, the Gentiles that want to destroy the Jews. They get the first in Oiz, measure for measure. The Jews don't deserve it because they're sinning, then that gift goes to the Goyim. Where did that begin? It began, you see, right over here. Right? Shechem. Because Yaakov did that sin, where he didn't fail to realize that Esau could have done tshuva. So what happened? Right? What happened? So the Teferis, what Shechem now says, we have to get together. Because our daughters will intermarry with yours and so on, your sons, and we're going to have incredible commerce and trade. What he's really saying is that we want to share your Teferis and Oiz. That's the beginning of the, where the, the, the Shem, where the, the, the beauty and the might of the Jews begins to become compromised. And now Shem wants it. In what form? Well, trade and commerce is Shlitos, the ability to become powerful. Okay? And not only that, it's all about civilization. What he's really saying is, let your civilization and my civilization, let's get together, let's merge them. You know what I'm saying? That is Tferis and Oiz. So, because of the sin of Yaakov, you begin to see the transference of those two major gifts that clients will have, Tferis and Oiz, is now being shared, or they want to share it, and that's what Shechem is proposing, or his father, and so on. Where's Tferis there? There's Oiz. What? Where's Tferis? Tferis is a civilization that comes out of that. The beauty of civilization, the Chochm and so on. It's a complete trade. It's not just the business... Business gives you not only wealth and so on, but also gives you tremendous access to civilization. The whole civilization, wealthy people don't live like poor people and so on, you know. But here's where you begin to see the trade-off. Where the, what Shem wants and Hamor, they want to now split or, you know, share this incredible power. Beauty, civilization, wisdom, and might, wealth and so on. And again, you see it because comes from the sin of Yaakov Avinu. But where does it take place? It takes place in Shechem. That's interesting. So Shechem is the place where you begin to see the trade-off of Tferis and Oyez. Great. Trade-off? Do you see any trade-off? I mean trade-off, I mean the sharing. Do you see any sharing yet? Or do you see a... Uh, well, that, that's the, an attempt. That's share. the attempt. Right. The attempt, yeah. Yeah, that's really what he's saying. Let our civilizations merge. You know, you and us, we'll get together and, uh, you know, we'll, it means let your success come to us and we'll give you what we have. You know, let's, let's merge your civilizations and so on. Okay, so that's the first thing that happens in Shechem, which is interesting. That's where it happens. 
See, I'm eventually trying to answer the question is, why is Joseph buried in Shechem? This is, I had to start from way back and try to go back, and now we understand why this takes place in Shechem. And so on. Okay, so that's the first idea. Second idea, and, by, and just to finish off this very important story, of course, um, um, no man can take over two jobs. I'm going to finish this off. No man can take over two jobs. <coughs> if Asa failed as an of, right? So Yaakov had to double up and take his job, which is what we see. But even Yaakov cannot double up completely. He can't. Why? Because Asa's job, which means to go into the world itself and to subdue it by remaining righteous, needs a certain type of temperament, right? Asa's temperament was Baltaiva. He was a tremendous pleasure seeker. And he's Gaiva arrogant. You know, that was his tendency, okay? And then he would go into the world and subdue those tendencies, remain righteous, and take out all the power from the world, all those the tremendous energies that the world has as a result of the sins of the Jews, okay? But Yaakov doesn't have that. Yaakov has basically truth. Yaakov is a man of truth. Yaakov is not about Taiva. We don't, you know, he's not a person that has enormous amount of drive for pleasure. He's certainly not arrogant. He's not a tzach. You know, he doesn't have that. So he can't do the job that Yosef could have done. Uh, so therefore, you need somebody else. So what the Bonshalom did, what God did is incredible. He said, Yaakov, who took over the job of Esau, that task needs, needs a partner. So what God did is incredible. He took a shaven, a tribe, Joseph, Yosef. He took Yosef and he said, you will not remain just a tribe. You are going to be half a patriarch, Khatziov. So Yosef, who was a regular tribe, was now elevated to be a patriarch, half, Khatziov. So Yaakov and Yosef together can destroy Esau or do the job of Esau. And that's why it says, Beis Yaakov Le'esh, the house of Jacob will be for a fire. Beis Yosef Lehova, and the house of Joseph will be the flame of that fire. And together they will reduce Esau to being Lekash, to being straw. Because you need both. So therefore, we have the story, the rest of the story, where Yosef, who is supposed to be only a tribe, is now elevated in his holiness, in his abilities, to be half a patriarch. <clears throat> That's what we see. So therefore, the whole story of Yosef is that, fundamentally. And we understand the many, many questions that are answered once we understand that. Because Yosef had two tribes, Menashe and Ephraim. How could a, a shaver, how could a tribe have another tribe? He can't. He doesn't have that type of lofty soul. But the answer is, he had the soul, or he was half and of. Half and of, you can have already two tribes. Interesting. So he had that ability and so on. But there are many things. There's one thing I would like to point out which is fascinating. If Yosef took over the job of Esau, which is the pleasure part of Esau, the taiva, yes, where do you see this? Where does the Torah allude to the fact that the major job of Yosef is to complete Esau's job? And I'll tell you, it's another one-word idea. What's that? Oh, where's the, where do you see Esau's patifa? Let's take it to the most, one of the f most famous stories of Yosef. What is that? Where he now is sold, the brothers sell Yosef, the famous kidnapping, and they sold him. And by the way, where did they sell him? Shechem. That's event number two. Right? Event number two. And what, 
what is the story of Yosef? Yosef is an incredibly, he's an interpreter of dreams. The Chochma, it's called Paneach Rosa, right? Softness Paneach, he's an incredibly wise man, right? And he's given over to Egypt, so they have now the Oiz. Egypt has the Shlita, and they take the wisdom of Yosef for their own benefit. And that happened in Shechem. Mechiras Yosef, the sale of Joseph by his brothers, happened in Shechem. That's a second very interesting event where Tferis and Oiz, might and beauty, are transferred to, uh, to Egypt. Okay? But, where's the real contest? The real contest is for Tifa's wife. He became sold, and then eventually he wound up being the main organizer or administrator of Fatifa's house. Fatifa was one of the high priests of Egypt, right? And he, obviously Yosef was an incredibly handsome guy, very handsome, right? And uh, the wife of Fatifa took one look at Yosef, and okay, she wanted to seduce him. Famous story. So, the terror starts off. And Joseph went into the house of Fatifa to do his job. To do his job. Now, what's his job? Well, he's an administrator of Fatifa's house. But what do we need? What his real job? We know what his real job is. To do the job of Esau. Is it not? Right? To withstand temptation. Yes? Okay. You can read the same verse. Two different jobs. One is the upper story, and now we're going to hit the lower story. And then it says in the same passage, he went to the house, do his job, right, which is to administrate and so on. And it says there, the ain ish, the ancha bias, and there was no men of the household shamba boys. There was no men of the household in the house. He was alone. And of course, Fatifa's wife came out and she tried to seduce him. Then he ran away, and so on. That's the famous story of Yosef. But if we looked. Why does the Torah record this event? I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible story, but why record the event? Because this event was where Yosef was going to do Esau's job. How? Because the desire that when Fatifa's wife tried to seduce him, that desire that Yosef had was beyond belief. The, the Yetzirah to be with Fatifa's wife was truly satanic. It was beyond normal. You know, it's Yosef all of a sudden had the Yitzhahara of Esau. And Esau's Yitzhahara, his evil inclination, was beyond normal. Because we see before he was born, he was trying to get into a house of Yitzhahara, of idol worship. So we now encounter the story where, Esau, Yosef, uh, where Yosef, who took over the job of Esau, now has the same incredible drive as Esau. Now let's see what, Esau, what Yosef does. Uh, so the Torah starts us off. And he came to the house to do his job, job of Esau, right? And Fatifa's wife tries to seduce him, but that inclination, that temptation, was beyond normal. That's what it was, because this is what the Yetzar of Esau was. And how do we see that? Because it says, the Ain Ish, and there was no man of the household in the house. What should it have said? And there was no man in the house. But it doesn't say that. It says there was no man of the men of the house in the house. Wait a minute. If you talk like that, what you're really saying is there was no man, there was no man of the men of the household there. But what does that mean? But there was another man. There was, there's no, there was no man of the household. But there was another man. 
not of the household. That's called a diuk. It's an implication. The Torah should have just said there was no man there, period. But it doesn't say that. It says there was no man of the house of the men of the household there. Which means, yeah, the household. But there was another man. Who's that man? When Yaakov fought the Malach, what does it say? Ish imoi. And Yaakov fought with a man. Who is that man? So, the Torah is actually telling us in that posseh that the temptation of Yosef is going to be the same taiva that Yosef has. And that man, who is not of the household, is the identical man that Yaakov fought. Because that was his main job of doing the job of Esau. It's incredible. With that one diuk, the Torah tells you what's about to happen. It's like, you know, all you need is one or two words and you see what's going on, like the dark and so on, you know. So what he was about to encounter was just an unbelievable temptation. And of course he succeeded. He ran away. Yes, because I just said, Yaakov could not do the Taiva job of Esau. He took over to subdue evil, but to subdue evil in terms of pleasure and, and immorality, you have to do that. And Yaakov doesn't have that inclination. And God is not going to give him that inclination. All of a sudden he walks in the morning and says, wow, and he's not going to do that. So Yosef had that inclination. Because he used to comb his hair and all that. So he took over with that inclination and he was going to do that job. Uh, so the story of Fetifa's wife is one of the greatest stories because the Satan, the Yetzirah, the evil temptation of, of, of uh, Yosef wasn't normal, was abnormal. It was the same temptation that Yaakov had when he fought the man and that was the temptation of Esau. <coughs> Interesting. Fascinating what's going on here and how the Torah alludes to all these kind of ideas with one or two words. by superfluous, seemingly superfluous words and so on. But what do we see? That Yosef was sold in Egypt. Uh, excuse me, in Shechem. That's what the Mechir is Yosef. And Yosef was an incredibly wise person. I mean, the man ran Egypt. He's the one who saved him from all the... Uh, what an administrator. You know, I always say it's beyond belief. You, know, you imagine a man with such talent. And where is he? He's in prison. I mean, he's the guy that saved Egypt from, seven, from the seven years of... Well, it's supposed to be seven years of famine. Like, what is a man with that kind of talent doing in jail? You know, that's how concealed Yosef really was. Obviously, he was an extraordinary abilities to administrate dreams and so on, you know. Uh, and, and, he's, and, you know, and Egypt so lacks the understanding of people that he's sitting and rotting in jail. Okay, it's all part of the Ashgokha. It's all part of the divine idea, but this shows you something. When God wants to hide a guy, boy, can he hide a guy, you know. Right under your nose, and nobody even knows what's going on. But anyway, so the second incredible thing that happened is what? Is that he was sold in Shechem. Which means that the abilities of Yosef, the wisdom, the chokhmah, the wisdom, and the might of Yosef, is given over to who? Is given over to Egypt. Where they now mm. access the wisdom of Yosef to work for them, and of course they have the might to be able to subdue him. So that's the second event of Tferes and Oiz in Shechem. And the third idea is Zerovam. When Shlomo Melech, when he died, who took over? Rechavam, his son. He became the king of Israel. Okay? And there was a whole uh, a contest, whatever, and Yerovam ben Avot broke away from Rechavam. 
that's where the Jewish people split. Where you had, you know, Yehuda and, and Yisrael. That's where the ten tribes split in Shechem. Okay? But again, who was Yerobim ben Avot? Most people don't realize, but Yerobim ben Avot, who, uh, who was the one who took, uh, you know, Rechavam was the son of Shlomo, and Yerobim ben Avot was an individual who most people have no concept of who this guy was. The Ramchal says that Yerobim ben Avot almost was the most closest person who ever came to Mashiach ben Yosef. That's who Yerobim ben Avot was. The, the man was incredible. It says that he used to learn with Achel Shiloini. Achel Shiloini was uh, somebody who lived hundreds of years and so on, you know? And they used to talk of Kabbalah, and the, the discussion that they had was so unbelievable that Malachim used to come down just to listen to their conversation. That's what, who this guy was. And he's the one who split from Rechavam, the son of Solomon, and he took the ten tribes with him. That happened in Shem also. So there, so the wisdom of Yerovam went into what's called the satanic, Sutton, because then he introduced the ten tribes to unbelievable what idol worship. So therefore, Shechem is a place with Ferris and Oiz. Beauty and might is always being switched. Started off at Shechem, let's share. Then all of a sudden, they took over that access. And that will come now ultimately, and that's why Shechem is a place that Ferris and Oiz is always switching. The beauty and the might of Israel, because it started off with Shechem and Dina. That's where it happened. I mean, I would be up before that, you know, whatever the... Wait, how is that, how is that adjusted with Yushalayim, Shem Yushalayim? Obviously, the jumps to the position. Well, there is no Yushalayim now. I mean, you know, in, in that sense, Shem was a major city, obviously, in Canaan. There's no real Yushalayim until later by David, you know, and so on. But in any case, so therefore, which is interesting, so Shem is a place that always has this, is where it is a constant, uh, what do you call, transference of the beauty and might of the Jewish people that is always being given to the Sultan and whatever nations want to do evil to the Jewish people. It's always happening in Shechem. So how are we going to get it back, you see? So, Mashiach bin Yosef. What is the main power of Mashiach bin Yosef? I'll tell you, I think I once said this. It says a posse, when Moshe Rabbeinu at the end is blessing the Jewish people, He's blessing Klai Israel. So he, he's blessing each tribe. So he offers a blessing to Yosef. What's the blessing? The firstborn of his ox. Beauty is his. He's talking about Yosef at Tzadik. That the beauty of Yosef, the animal that represents the tribe of Joseph is the ox. And he says, the firstborn of his ox, beauty is his. And the horns of this ox is not the horns of an ox, it's the horns of a re'em. It's a, an animal that doesn't exist anymore. But that's the horns of this ox, not the normal horns of an ox. And with this horns, is going to grow the nations. The question is, what is this? This clearly, I mean, we're talking about an ox, the firstborn of an ox. He's got horns of a re'em, he's going to grow the nations. It's obviously, it's, a, it's an allegory or a metaphor. You know what I'm saying? So we need to interpret that metaphor. So here's what it is. Shoiroi, the ox is the symbol of Joseph. The firstborn of that ox, of Joseph, 
is Mashiach bin Yosef. What about Mashiach bin Yosef, right? His horns are not the horns of an ox, but it's the horns of a re'ain. What's the difference? If you ever look at a bull, a bull has short horns. They're short, okay? But the horns are very powerful because the shoulders of the bull is incredible, right? So a bull has horns. It's not pretty, it's not beautiful, but because it, it's short and stout, but has enormous power. But what Moshe Rabbeinu is saying is that the horns of this ox is not the horns of the ox, it is the horns of a re'aim. And you ever, you ever say, take a look at some deer or goats, how their horns are beautifully symmetrical. Some animals have gorgeous horns. I mean, just take a look at some of the shoifers, you know, that you blow that come from them, you know. So the horns of this ox is not merely powerful. It's magnificent, beautiful to look at. The symmetry where the horns come out and then they fold and they go. You ever see sometimes horns of, of these, the antlers of, of, of uh, goats or um, deer or antelopes and so on? Magnificent, you know, and so on, you know. So, Moshe Rabbeinu is saying that the horns of Mashiach bin Yosef, which is interesting, is not the horns of the regular, it's the horn, magnificent horns of, let's say, a, a, a deer, or ram, or whatever, and so on, right? And, but what's he going to do, Mashiach bin Yosef, with this? He's going to call the nations. Now, why would the Mashiach bin Yosef have horns? The only one who thought Jews have horns is Michelangelo, because he painted on the Sistine Chapel with Moshe Rabbeinu, I mean, two, two horns coming out of his head. And the reason why he did that is because there's current all pun of, because his, uh, the, uh, the head of Moshe Rabbeinu emitted an incredible light. But horn there means, Karen means a ray of light, doesn't mean a horn. Karen also means horn, so obviously Michelangelo thought, you know, they have horns, you know? Okay. Anyway. Um, in any case, uh, so, so what Moshe Rabbeinu is saying about Yosef Atzadik is that the horns of Yosef, of Mashiach and Yosef, is magnificent. Now, question is, horns, where do they emanate from? The head. What are horns used for? Defense, protection. So, what Meshav Bain is saying is that what emanates from the head besides horns? Wisdom. So, that's an illusion that the Mashiach ben Yosef's, what emanates from his head, is unbelievable chokhmah. Wisdom. And not only is it incredible wisdom, but it's magnificent. And that's the concept of beauty. The, the wisdom is not only it comes out, but it's incredibly, beautifully systemic. It's structured. It's a beautiful picture. What's the definition of beauty? What is beauty? Anybody know? When somebody says to somebody, you're beautiful, what are they really saying? Attractive. No, That's the results of beauty. But what is beauty? Symmetry. Yeah. You know what it is? It's when you have a lot of different fragments and they all beautifully, I hate to use the same word in the definition, but they all harmoniously blend into a composite. Somehow they all fit together into one composite picture. That's beauty. If you ever see a Rembrandt or any of the famous guys, right? You look at their painting, this is incredible. How did they combine the light, the texture, the shading, the perspective, and all the things that go into a painting, and it's like one thing that looks at you. It was, because a painting is really a combination of so many different factors. So that's beauty in a painting. Music. You ever hear Beethoven's Fifth or something like that? 
All Beethoven's symphonies are just a bunch of notes, a bunch of sound frequencies. That's all it is. But wow, what a combination. You know, you put those together, the melody and the counterpoint, the harmony, all that, and it's incredible to listen to. That's beauty in music. Because you put down all the different ideas of music into one glorious symphony. You see, it's the blending, harmonious blending together of many, many different fragments. Beauty and Chochmah, what is it? It's when you look at 15 ideas and you combine it into one story, one idea, you see. You combine it to an incredible structure. That's beauty and wisdom. It's called the big picture, you see. Sheikh bin Yosef, he has the horns of a re'im, which means not only does he have the power of a bull, but his horns, which means his wisdom, is magnificent. It reveals everything. It's structured. It reveals depth, what the fundamental principles are, what the, the what he called the, the, the repercussions of the wisdom. It's like a total picture. And what does he do with them? So not only does he has the horns of Rahim, which is Tferis, that's what Mashiach ben Yosef has, but what does he do with this wisdom? He gores the nation, there's your oiz. So the Mashiach ben Yosef, his signature, so to speak, is Tferis and oiz, is beauty and might, you see. That's Yosef, Yosef at Sadiq. So therefore Yosef has to be buried in Shrem. Why? Because he has to take back all the Tferis and oiz that was happened in Shrem whether because of Dina and Shrem, or because of Mechiras Yosef, or because that's where the kingdom of Israel was split, the ten tribes split and so on. All the Tferes and Oiz centers in Shrem, because that's where it began to be given. And Yosef is therefore buried in Shrem, because it's his job to take it back, to get it back for us. And that's why he's buried in Shrem. And what the interesting thing about that is whenever you take a look, when the Arabs revolt, <coughs> what's the first city they take? Shem. Why? Because the angel of Yishmael, of the Arabs, knows because everybody wants the Tferis and Oyes, the beauty and the might of the Jews. And when the Arabs rebel, which means their guardian angel of Yishmael, wants to overthrow the Jews, the first thing he goes for is Shem. Because that's where the whole history lies. And you know where you see that? This is not something that happened 4,000 years ago. No. I'll tell you something that happened 20 years ago, less. World Trade Center. What two things happened in the World Trade Center? World Trade Center was destroyed. What else? The Pentagon. Yes? Those are the two famous events. What does the World Trade Center represent? First, the beauty of civilization. It's magnificent, those buildings. But not only that, all the economics, everything, the whole New York State, with, uh, yeah, and the whole America is based on the World Trade Center. What? Civilization. Civilization. So that was the Tferis. So when the Arabs tried to bomb America, they bombed the symbol of Tferis. And what was the other symbol? Pentagon. Oiz. Wow. You know, that, they, they went for the very things that represent the civilization. Why? Because the Arabs, who has the Tferis and Oiz now? Edwin, Western civilization has it. So the Arabs want it back, or rather they want it, so they went, they bombed the very two things, Ferris and Oiz, that Edoim, Esau of Western civilization has. It's amazing that something which happened, when, in 2001, right? Yeah. 
was already predicted thousands of years ago. And that's why the, the contest between the, the Jews and Esau, or the Jews and the Goyim, is always over Tferes and Ois. You want to experience Tferes and Ois, the beauty and the might, what the Jews used to have? Walk down Fifth Avenue. Sounds funny. Walk down Fifth Avenue. It's magnificent. The shops, the stores, you know, it's, and it's not just the beauty, this, the items for sale. It's, it's the, in Yiddish, it's fanem. It's, it's the majesty. What? Grandeur. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, it's the, it's the, you walk down Fifth Avenue or any of the avenues in Manhattan, you know? I don't, you walk down Paris or London, you know, where you're, you know, it's the majesty, the grandeur, the beauty of civilization. That's our first noise. That's really what it is. It's our first noise that they have. And I'll show you another very interesting thing. Wow. I'll show you another incredible thing. 2,500 years ago, what happened? The first temple was destroyed. Yes? Now remember, who has Tferes Anoyes? The Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, right? That's the Divine Presence, that's their gift, right? So 2,500 years ago, what happened? The first temple was destroyed, right? But that means, what does that mean? That means we lost our Tferes Anoyes. Yes? Where'd it go? Did God take it back? No. Do you know that at the same time, within the 100 year period, that we lost the Beis Amikos, the first one, first temple, do you know that all, most of the religions of the world were founded? When we lost Ferris and Oyes, <coughs> we not only, we lost the ability to perceive God, because you, you lose our ability to access the divine is severely diminished, okay? But where did all that go? It went into the hands of the Goyim, the non-Jew. Where do you see that? Because most of the world's religions were founded at the same time we lost. What religions? Ois. Rome became a, a, an empire, or began, the Roman Empire began in five, 525 BCE, which was within 100 years that we lost the temple. Not only that, Greek philosophy. The whole Greek philosophy, you know, Archim not Archimedes, um, Aristotle, Socrates, Parmenides, all these guys lived around the same time that we lost our temple. That's the first, the Chochmah, right? In fact, if you want to see that, it says that in Echo. Echo, where we lay on Tishabah, what does it say there? It says this. It says, Soreho o Malkeho Bagoyim. Soreho, her princes and her kings are amongst the Gentiles, the Goyim, the nations of the world, right? What is that? That's Oiz. They took it. Ain't Torah. There is no Torah. It means the Chochmah of Torah, the Tferes, is given also to them. The and the prophets also have no visions. What Yimmy is saying is that it's not that we lost our ability to access the divine and we lost the beauty and might of civilization of the Jews. It all went to the other side. That's what he's saying. Where do you see this? When the first temple was destroyed 2,500 years ago, right? So that's when the major religions of the world were founded. Buddhism. That's when Buddha lived. 600 million Buddhists. Taoism. Leo Tzu, the founder of Taoism. Hundreds of millions of Taoism. Okay? Confucius lived. They all lived at that time. And not only Greek, Greek, Greek science and philosophy also was at that time. That's the Tferis. And in addition to that, there was the Oyes, the might, Rome. That's when Rome started. 
You see, so when we lost the base Amitas, we lost it first in noise that went to the Goyim. Second temple was destroyed 2,000 years ago. Yes? Well, you know the formula. Second temple destroyed, that means the beauty and might of civilization that the Jews had now goes to the Goyim. Right? So, second temple was destroyed. Clearly, the Oyes went to Rome because Rome succeeded in destroying the temple. Yes? And certainly the Tferis, the beauty also, the Chochmah also went. But there was something else. The major Chochmah of the Jews is their insight into God. Their ability to access that, the, the attributes of God and so on. Right? What religion was founded at the same time that we lost the second temple? Christianity. Christianity is really Judaism on its head. What does that mean? You have to understand what that is. Most religions don't need Judaism as a dogma. But think about it. If Judaism doesn't exist, there's no Christianity. Not only because Yeshu doesn't exist, right? But most of the, most of the, the ideas of, of, of Christianity come from the Torah. The whole New Testament, in many ways, is based on the ideas of the Torah, and so on. So it comes out, it's an amazing thing. Think about this. We say that what? We're the house of Israel. Yes? What do they say? They're the house of Israel. Hey, wait a minute. You know, we're the house of Israel, but they say they're the house of Israel. Okay? We say that we have the Mashiach. Yes? What do they say? They have the Messiah. It, 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 what it is, it, it, it's, it's a theft of Judaism. And not only that, the Pope wears a yarmulke. <laughs> you know, I mean, he couldn't get You don't realize something. Christianity is really Judaism on its head. It's called a Moshe Kapoya. You know what I'm saying? It's because Christianity, the, the dogma of Christianity is fundamentally Judaism. That's what Paul did when he went in to the, because Paul knew this stuff. What he did is he took out of the Torah all the ideas, whatever all the, 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 whatever, all the ideas and so on, the concept of one God, even though they have a trinity and so on, many ideas, you know, uh, uh, turn the other cheek, whatever, they're all from the Torah. In fact, if you take away the Torah, there is no such thing as Christianity. And he himself was Jewish. You see that? So therefore the question is, what do you mean? What impetus gave Christianity the ability to exist? And the answer is, when the first, the, the second base of Amigdash was destroyed, when our temple was destroyed, then our beauty and might goes into the hands of the Goyim. And it pops out as a religion, just like it popped out when the first base of Amigdash was destroyed. That was the major religion. Most of the world's religions, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, Greek philosophy and science, and the uh, empire of Rome, it was all founded within the 100 year time that we lost the base of Amigdash. I mean, Yimio says that. So therefore, if the second temple is destroyed, the exact same thing happens. We lose the access of God. We lose the inability, right, of the Pharisees and Oyes. We lose it again. So therefore, we would predict a major religion is going to come out. Because that's what we lost. That's exactly what he It's merged. not that a religion came out. They spell it out. They say, we now have your covenant. Well, like they don't even know this. It just happens naturally, like something's behind the scenes. Well, yeah, but you know, say we have the covenant. You could have been a separate religion, their own ideas, like Greek or whatever. But but it's not. See, that, that's the Christianity. All other religions, all other religions have not to do with Judaism. Nothing. But Christianity is a usurpation of Judaism. It, 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 it's, it's Judaism 
you know what it really is, which is because uh, most of the uh, rituals of Christianity are paganistic. I mean, it's really incredible. You take, even in Christmas, it's really Saturnalia. Uh, the Christmas tree, I mean, you can go through the whole roster of this stuff. The whole concept of a trinity. I mean, uh, many religions have a trinity. Uh, you know, uh, even Egypt, Isis and Osiris and whatever and so on. And, and, so, and the whole concept of a, a virgin birth is classically Greek, uh, Greek mythology where Hercules was born. Uh, uh, like mortals. Yeah, they're, they're, they're gone. Christianity is really paganism with a Jewish veneer. It's really what it is. It has enormous amount of paganistic ideas. It's astounding because that's really where it comes from. What Paul tried to do is he tried to take Christianity and he wanted to bring it to the Jews, but they wouldn't have any of it. What do they need this for? They got their own Torah. So what happened is he realized that. So Paul said, I got to get it out there. So what he did is he added a great deal of paganistic concepts to the religion and therefore it took favor because everybody was pagan in those days, 2,000 years ago. So what happened is Paul, in fact, Yeshu says, which is astounding, I don't, I, I don't come to give, bring my religion to you. He was talking to the Romans. I come to bring my religion to the Jews. Yeshu says that. He, it's, it's in the New Testament that I come to bring my religion to the, to, the, to, the, to the Jews. This is not your religion to the Romans. It's the Jews. So Paul said, fine. So he tried to bring it to the Jews. But they said no, obviously. So then he realized. So what he did was a brilliant idea. He paganized Judaism with all kinds of pagan doctrines, and therefore it was accepted, ultimately speaking. <coughs> I, always find, I always find it uh, an incredible thing that, uh, what was the sin that destroyed the second base of Mikdash? What sin destroyed the second temple, really? Sin Aschino, basis hatred. But the Chofetz Chaim in the Mashor says it wasn't that, it was lush and horror. Because when you hate people, then you talk evil and slander. Slander destroyed the second base of Middash. The slander of the Jews to the Jews. So what did God say? <coughs> it's incredible. God said, you destroyed my temple. He's talking to the Jews. You destroyed them because of the slander, right? And as a result of that, you allowed your beauty and might to go into the hands of the Goyim, where major religions emerged. And in the second temple, the major religion that emerged was, of course, Christianity. Then they will destroy you through slander. What's the greatest document ever written that destroys the Jews? I don't know if you realize that. It's the New Testament. It makes the Jews... If you ever, if you ever read a lot of these guys, St. Augustine, and the guys who lived after... It, it's unbelievable that they're, they're children of the devil. I don't even want to go into what they say. The Christians have slandered the Jews. But on a, on a certain level, it's incredible. Why? Because that's measure for measure. God says, you have destroyed my temple because of your lush and horror, your slander, and you gave rise to another religion, right? Then their weapon against you will be slander. Wow. What a justice against the Jews. And it is. And therefore, we have been the, the subjects of unbelievable slander for 2,000 years. I mean, people, that, that's the Catholic Church destroys the Jews because of they say the Jews are vipers and all this kind of stuff and so on. It's it's Shema. It's incredible defamation. But what gives them is that power? And the answer is Aulosh and Hara. That's what gives them their power. And therefore, this is what happens. So there you see it. I mean, this happens all the time. In fact, the history of the Jews is nothing more than the history of them sinning. They give their power 
their ideas to the non-Jews, and the non-Jews kill them. That happens all the time. Because that's the incredible mystical trade-off. We have power, we have beauty, we have might and wisdom. I mean, you take a look. One-third of all Nobel laureates are Jews. Can you explain to me how that's possible? Again, the Jews number one-quarter of one percent of the world population. That's not, that's not a large population. You know, one-quarter of one percent. We didn't even make it to one percent of the world's population. It's absurd. Yet the Jews have won one-third of the greatest prize that man has to offer. In fact, the prize of chemistry, three Jews walked away with it. I, I, you know, I, I haven't kept up with it, but it's just beyond belief. So the question is how? Because Jews have incredible chokhmah. They have tremendous wisdom. And that's why, I'm so, look, Israel is one of the biggest high-tech states in the world today. People are trying to grab all the inventions coming out of Israel. Because that's their tferis. That's their beauty. Unfortunately, we keep giving it away. And therefore, other nations take. And that's what happens. Yes, so in the end, the Mashiach ben Yosef has to come back. And, and that, that's exactly how he vanquishes the nations. He takes back the tferis and oils that we gave them, the beauty and the might. That's the Kani Reim. And he goes them, and that's how he brings, that's, that's how he does his job. So you now understand, which is, and, and, let me tell you something, there are so many different illustrations of this, you know. I can give you, you want one more? One more illustration. Mm -hmm. Yes? Yeah. You'd never believe this. I'll give you one illustration which is astounding. Which is the first in the eyes of the Jews that go to the Goyim. And you know what it's called? It's going to be shocking. It's called science. Now you can say, excuse me, what are you talking about? The Zoya says that in the year 5000, the Zoya says that in the year 5000, which is the English year 1240, right? An incredible spark or flow of wisdom will come down to the world. And that was in 1240. Again, in the Jewish year 12, 5000, in the Jewish year 5000, which is 1240, which is about 800 years ago, it says that the beginning of wisdom will come down to the world. Without going into why, okay. Oh, who's supposed to get that stuff? We, because we have the first noise. Did we get it? Of course we got it, partially. That's the Zoya, that's Kabbalah. That's, and the Zoya was discovered around 1290. That's exactly when we began to get it. Okay, but wait a minute. What did we do then? We were sinning. Jews are sinning. So therefore, what's the formula here? That the first in the ears of the Jews goes to the Goyim. Right? The father of science lived in 1240. What's his name? Roger Bacon. He's the one who started the scientific method. He broke away finally from Aristotle, who was an armchair scientist. He made a lot of mistakes. And Roger Bacon, who lived in 1240, is the founder of science. He is the founder of modern of science, not modern science. And there you have again, see, the first always for the Jews is the mysticism, the Kabbalah. And by the Goyim, it's science. Why? What is science, really? What is it? What's the essential idea of science? The essential idea of science is that any chokhmah, any discipline they take, they will go straight down to its bottom, its fundamental principles. 
And through the fundamental principles of any wisdom, any discipline, they can now understand the structure and predict what's going to happen. For instance, if you are a biologist, what's the fundamental structure of biology? Genes, DNA, they studied that. You're into physics, what's the fundamental structure of matter, right? Atoms, right? Any chokhmah, what science realized is that whatever discipline you learn, you need to go to the bottom for its fundamental principles. What is Kabbalah? The fundamental principles of what? Of reality. That's what Kabbalah really is. So when the divine force comes down in the year 12, 5000, which is the English year 1240, to us it's going to come down as what? Kabbalah. Because that's the fundamental understanding of what? Of all the laws of Judaism. But if it comes down to the non-Jews, because we give it away, it's not going to come down as religion. It's going to come down as what? Their understanding of the physical universe. What's that called? Science. You see? So to them it comes as science. To us it comes as Kabbalah. And both to begin to grow. You see? Uh, so that, that's, that's an, it, it, which is astounding. And by the way, that or that incredible influence or power that came down in 1240 is the beginning of the messianic light. That's really what it is. So it comes down that until there was a messianic light, even science couldn't move forward. There was no science. Uh, there was, but it was primitive. So it's amazing that science itself needed the messianic light as the impetus to begin to happen. And when it did come down finally, it came down for us by the Jews as Kabbalah, and by them it came down as science. And also came down in other ways. Rambam. Because he was the first one that reorganized the entire Gemara into a systematic approach, which is really science being applied to halacha to organize the whole thing. But without getting into that, everything began in 1240, the Rambam lived in 1240. Uh, so therefore, what I'm trying to show you, this concept of Ferris and Ois, is what's called uh, ubiquitous, it's universal. This is, this is what goes on throughout history. The Jews have this gift because of their attachment to the divine presence of the Shrida. They sin, unfortunately, and then the first and Oyes, they give it to the Goyim, in some other form. So if they have religion, so they give Goyim religion. If they have Chochmah, fundamental ideas, then they give it to Goyim as fundamental ideas, except it's in the physical universe. Whatever it is, it's always happening. And finally, <coughs> when Yishmuel, the Arabs, decide that they want to take back first noise from Edoim, Western civilization, what do they attack? World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Ferris and Oiz. It's amazing it, what, what always goes on. Anyway, so we now understand <coughs> why Yosef is buried in Shechem. Because that's where it begins to originate from. The transference of Ferris and Oiz and so on. And, uh, and, and, and that itself is, in many ways, is the incredible history of, of, of what goes on with Jews and so on, you know. <clears throat> but in any case, hopefully, the Pharisee noise will be restored to the Jews. But when it's restored to the Jews, then it really flows out to the entire world. It's not like we take it and they're bereft. No. What happens is it comes to us, but it's used properly. It's used not only in the, in, for the advent of Chochmah, wisdom, science, but it's also used for religion, for spirituality, to realize that the real essence of the universe is not physical, it is spiritual. That's the Jews' message to the world, that the universe is really a spiritual place. 
Our problem is we don't see it because we live in a physical, it has a physical shell that envelops the universe. But the message is that reality is not just physical, it's essentially spiritual. So when the Tfereset always comes back, then you will see something that has never happened before. And that's what the Mashiach does. He will combine the spiritual universe with the physical. And he will show you why is it that gravity exists. And he's going to show you how gravity really exists as a spiritual counterpart. And that explains gravity. All the atoms and so on. He will unite the totality of reality, which is the spiritual and the physical. And the world will never be the same after that. That's for sure now, you know. So let's hope it's in our days. What can I say, you know? That's in our, in our days. And uh, look, we have, we've done quite a journey today. What can I say? Any questions? Yosef was sold. Who? Yosef. He was sold in Shechem. Say that again? Yosef. Yeah. was sold in Shechem. Shechem, yeah. That's because of the of the three Lashon Hara he said. Yeah, that, again, exactly, yeah. Lashon Hara, slander is always worth doing it. Yeah, and because Yosef spoke Lashon Hara against his brothers. So therefore his first and always would give to Egypt. What happened to Islam? Islam is also, also started from Judaism. Meaning it's also founded on it. And what triggered it? You know, religions are either you're in the East. And by the way, by the way, if you think that even the East, it's also from Judaism. You know, there's a Zoya that says that Rabbi Aibu, you know, in the Chumash it says that when Avram, before he died, he gave gifts to the, his kids. And it says that they went to the east. It says that in the Chumash, right? So Rashi says he gave, gave them Shemois Tumor, defiled names. Magic. Whatever, because Avram Avinu knew it. So the question is, what do you mean they went to the east? Where did they go? So there's a Zoya says that Rabbi Aibu, that was his name, that he traveled to the east. Interesting. And he found that they took the Shemois Tumor and they combined it with spirituality. It's amazing. It was not just Shemus Tumah, that there was a lot of Ruchni, spirituality, in the Shemus Tumah. It was they combined it with the other teachings of Avraham Avinu. In fact, what he, what, what's probable is that he went to the East, so from Israel to the East, he went to India. And Hinduism, and all the religions of the East, which by the way is much more spiritual, because they're into meditation. I don't know if you know it, the Eastern religions are much more powerful, much more spiritual than many other religions. Because they're not so much focused on ritual, they're much more focused on meditation, self. Even if you take yoga, yoga, for instance, you know, nirvana and samadhi without getting into kundalini and all that stuff. But anyway, they're much more. So the interesting thing about that, the interesting about that, what is, how, what's the name of a, of a Hindu priest? Brahman. Brahman. Well, if you put an A in front of Brahman, what is it called? Abrahman. <laughs> The ashram is after his great-great-grandson, Ashuram. And Indus, the Indus River, yeah. is Sanskrit for the other sider. Avram Avinu is... Indus is exactly the, the other side. The yeah, Avram was called Avram Avri, the other side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which shows you that the religions of the East really come from Avram Avinu. And his children took the Kishov, you know, the, 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 the names that indicate magic. And what they did is they combined it with the Avodah Zorah of the place they went to. Because when they went to India, there was an idol worship, right? So what they did is, the, these guys took it over. You know, I find it interesting because the original Indians, they were, you know, I don't know if you know it, but the original Indians were taken over by the Aryans. I don't know if you realize that, but, but you say, in 1500 or 1600 BCE, there was an incredible invasion by the Aryans, and nobody knows where they came from, 
who invaded India. And they took it over, and Sanskrit is part of that language, and so on, you know. Uh, so it's interesting, they don't know where, but were they the kings of Avram Avinu and, and, and so on? But clearly you see that the Eastern religions, which are very spiritual in nature, has enormous amount of uh, religious uh, Jewish, Jewish concepts. It's amazing when you think about that. And even their priest, like I said, there's a Brahmin, just put an A in front of Brahmin, it's Abraham, it's Abraham, you know, Avram, Abraham, you know, and so on. <clears throat> and people don't realize that. <clears throat> so it comes out that ultimately Judaism is always spawning religions to its own detriment, you know. Anything, anything triggered Islam? What? Anything triggered Islam? Well, Islam is interesting because Islam is not a religion in the sense that uh, Islam is not really a separate religion. Islam dis distorts the prophecy because they hold Muhammad is the greatest and the last of the prophets. But they don't destroy the uh, monotheism. They hold as one God. See, they didn't touch the, the, what's called the deity, the Godhead. Christianity wiped it out when they said there were three. But even they say it's a mystical one because even they can't get away because they're bothered. It says, Zero is the Lord God, the Lord is one. Excuse me, what's this three business if it says one? You can't play around with the Chumash. You know how many times it says there is no other God besides me? I mean, you know, it's just like one, one after the other. You know, there's no other God besides me. Besides me, there's nobody else. There is no other God that sits beside me. This is all over the scriptures. So how, where do you get three gods? So they have to say it's three, three, it's a mystical one. Yeah, play around with that, you know, and so on, you know. But everybody knows it doesn't make sense. It's impossible, it makes absolutely no sense. In fact, even they admit it's a mystery that they cannot understand. How can it be three and one at the same time? Because essentially, like I said, Christianity is really, is, it's really paganism with a Jewish veneer, front. And that's how Paul got it out to everybody. A very smart guy, because no Jew wanted it and so on, you know. But essentially, the all religions basically come from Judaism. And they, of course, together, Judaism together with Avodah Zarah, idol worship corrupts whatever Judaism is, and you come up with another religion, you know, and, and, and so on. So this is what's been happening for thousands of years and so on. Look, for someone who's really honest, really honest, and it's hard to be honest, right? You need to look at the Chumash and read it. And when you finish reading the Chumash, you know who God is, and you know what the real religion is. How many times does it say, you know, you are my people, I will never, I mean, it just, I can go to a whole lecture about this, but anybody who learns the Chumash sees what the truth is and how other religions have incredibly usurped it and distorted it for their own views and so on. And that's really what goes on. But someday, you know, when the Mashiach will come, it says all the nations of the world will realize that there's one God, the Jews are his people, and that's it, and they will join Judaism, and then the whole world will be saturated with the truth. That's really what we're waiting for, you know, and so on, you know. But anyway, this is a nice view of history, and, and the whole concept of first noise, beauty, and might, and, and, and what's happening, and so on. Oh, next week, I would like to, next we, we change the clock tonight, so by the way, it's not 10.30, it's 9.30. <laughs> Uh, we change the clock. Uh, I, I, I would like to begin this year at 8.30. Is that a possibility?